Hi, welcome to Season 2 of the Silverline Podcast, an audio version of our video streams that we hold weekly. They're edited a little bit to make them a little more concise. My name is Roland Mann. I'm the head honcho at Silverline, and we have a great time making fun comics that we think that you'll enjoy. So thank you for listening, and maybe go check out some of our comics if you haven't already. This episode introduces guest speaker Alex Saviak. It originally aired February 21st, 2021. Uh, and our, we finally get around to our special guest today. Alex, this feels funny that I'm going to ask you to do this. Someone like me, I'm like, yeah, this guy doesn't need an introduction. But, but you know, this is going out to the interweb. So for the sake of all those who are, you know, 18 to 25, <laughs> tell everybody who you are. Yeah, those 18 to 25-year-olds are going, who the hell is that guy? Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I'm, um, well, as the introduction said, I'm Alex Saviuk. I've been in this comic book business for 44 years now, and uh, I don't know where those years went, but (laughs) at any rate, it was, you know, I started at DC Comics uh, way back in 1977. I hung out there for about uh, eight or nine years, drawing Green Lantern and the Flash, and um, uh, Hawkman and the Atom, Aquaman, um, Superman in uh, DC Presents with whatever guest star they had going all the time. Then we also did a Superman book for a German publisher, German publisher named Egmont. They wanted DC to produce their own comics specifically for their market. So I was doing a bunch of those. Now, did they Um, call it Ubermensch? Excuse me? Did they call it Ubermensch? Uh, no, they didn't. I, I don't believe they did. The word Uber <laughs> wasn't in there. No, no that was only on SNL. Um, but uh, yeah, I did, they, those were usually 46-page comics, So and they were quarterly. Wow. So if nobody knew what I was doing while I was doing, I was working for the German-slash-American market. And um, when I got to Marvel in 1986, when... Uh, I left DC Comics because they didn't have any more work for me. As a matter of fact, I think in 1985, it was November that um, I was invited along with everybody else that was working on Superman, whether it be writers or artists. We got invited to this lunch with the, you know, Joe Orlando and Dick Giordano and Janice, uh, Janet Kahn and all the bigwigs. And so we just thought, wow, they're, they're giving us a lunch because we're doing such great work. Um, little did we know that was the death knell. Uh, oh my sorry, goodness! But um, you know, Superman sales Superman sales were so bad that it was bordering on cancellation. Wow! And if it wasn't for the fact that it was owned by Warner Brothers and they had all the licensing going on, with God knows everything. I mean, you know, T-shirts, paper bags, uh, underwear, bedspreads, pillowcases. You know, they had all that stuff going, and that's what kept Superman, actually, Superman and Wonder Woman going, because those titles were, I mean, they were dipping below, like, around 80,000 books a, a month, which wow. is nothing. And Marvel was, you know, they were their break-even point was 100,000, and if you were bordering on 100, they might even cancel it. Aaron so, still works as Wonder Woman under Ruse. Yeah, that's so what right. happened was I, I didn't get a... The lazy. You know, what, when I didn't get a, uh, I've turned in my last Superman story in February of 1986. And they said, oh, geez, Julie Schwartz says, I have one story left and I owe it to Kurt Swan to give him the last Superman story before yeah. it goes to the new edit, you know, the new editors and stuff. 
And um, so I said, okay, now I happen to be fortunate enough to know John Ramita Sr. from when I was in high school and he lived, he lived in the next wow. town from mine. And really? I went to high school with his eldest son um, and also John Ramita Jr., who was really? younger than I am to the day. We both share the same birthday, but he looks like he's 40 and I look like I'm 70. Okay, so uh, he works out every day. I, I don't want to say this in public, so don't anybody get, let it get past this, but I think he dies his day. Okay, but at any rate, <laughs> it, it doesn't matter. He looks like he's 40 years old. Um, but yeah, so I just called him up and I said, hey, listen, um, you, know, uh, you know, can I come by and maybe drop off some samples? And he goes, what happened to D.C.? I said, well, and I explained the story to him. He says, yeah, come on by and drop some stuff off in my office because we have guys here that are constantly late and we're always needing fill-in guys. You can make a living just doing fill-ins here for us. So I said, okay. So I took a walk over across town, uh, met with John, dropped my some my latest Superman story I dropped off in his office. And that was, a, I think it was around, yeah, President's Day, okay, of uh, 1986. And um, by Thursday, I got a call from Mike Higgins at Marvel, and they needed to fill in on an Iron Man book. So I did an Iron Man book, uh, 211. And then after that, he was keeping me busy with uh, covers and some of the uh, New Universe stuff that Jim Shooter had created. You know, the fact that he wanted to create a universe of superheroes that were more realistically oriented just the way they seem to be now where you know you're trying to reduce the powers of this guy because it's just too much superman can't lift planets anymore and stuff and so he had a bunch of guys who had powers and you know maybe they had some kind of an outfit but it wasn't really some kind of a spandex you know where you can see the six-pack abs and all this kind of stuff i mean this character he created that was i think one of his uh uh, his springboard character was Starbrand, which John right. Jr. was drawing. But lo and behold, the, by the third issue, I don't know what JR was doing, but they asked me if I'd want to work on a Starbrand fill-in. And I said, sure, what happened to JR? And they said, well, he's working on some other project, but it's going to mean you have to work with Jim Shooter. I said, <laughs> okay, so what's wrong with that? Well, you know, Jim can, you know, be kind of tough on artists, et cetera, et cetera. I said, hey, I'm cool whatever he wants, you know, I'm, if you, if you pay my check, it's a business. Okay. <laughs> right. We're not yeah. talking Michelangelo here. We're not, <laughs> we're not in the Greenwich, we're not in Greenwich village. We're going to come up with some like interesting canvases with finger paints and stuff. And we're going to be starving in the corner. Okay. This is a commercial. It's mm. a commercial illustrative business. A lot of people forget that. No, they don't. Oh, many people have, they've never even realized it. They think that, Oh, Comics are so creative, and we have to do this. And that. We have you. You you can be creative. I must. I must creating art. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, there are some writers in the industry, as you may know, and there's mm. a famous one out there who, if an editor should, you know, basically edit one punctuation mark or change a word, he doesn't want his name on it anymore because it's not his work. Okay. I've had many oh. pencilers that that I've I've been forced to catch up the deadline for as the anchor because. The art just wasn't going. I'm like, this is a business. I put a roof over my head and feed my kids with this. Get it going. Well, well yeah, and of course, you know, there are the, um, there are those, um, I mean, I don't know. I know you got some pencilers here in this group, and I don't mm -hmm. know how you guys feel as pencilers. If you have an anchor working on your stuff, 
if I always liked to see what uh, what the inker can bring to the table. Yeah. So even though my pencils were tight, okay, they weren't tight to the point where nowadays people go, oh, wow, those pencils are so tight. Let's pop them in Photoshop and we'll just adjust, you know, the contrasts and stuff. We'll print right off of those babies. We don't even need an anchor. My yeah. stuff was never that tight, okay? But everything was there. But then again, if you look at the artists in my generation, um, you know, uh, they pencil. You look at a Carmen Infantino. Carmen Infantino's tight pencils look like breakdowns. I've okay? inked him. You've inked Carmine. That's I not an easy. Carmine. That's not an easy thing <laughs> to ink Carmine Infantino. He made me you cry. Know? but then you get i remember when he came back to do the flash and for a while there i think bob smith was inking him and he was inking him literally and so there were a lot of these like you know i mean the figures look look great but some of the backgrounds were very sketchily done and he basically worked with the framework that he had as as an inker to a penciler but then there was you know a guy like dennis jensen who if you recall that fellow as an anchor, mm, I inked yeah. him too. Like, I he was more like Murphy Anderson. He came in there, and I think if he inked a half a page a day, it was a lot. Because I was, was Dennis's just, favorite yeah. anchor. Oh, really? Dennis Jensen, yeah. Oh, do you have any idea where he is these days? Well, last I heard, he was just up north. He was in Wisconsin too. Last he was up in Lodi. Last I heard, but not Lodi. Uh, just up Mauston. But um, I haven't heard from him in years. He used to call me quite a bit and i used to inking quite a bit but uh isn't that who um isn't that who inked barry winter smith on a lot of the stuff at malibu the rune stuff curtis you remember that was it dennis jensen um, I, know, I know it was a bunch of people i mean i know larry welch did some of the inking for it i can't remember who else on, who else was rune? Doing yeah 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 he, i remember because he told me that that barry winter smith to give him tips <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah uh, so uh so alex who were some of your favorite so you've been inked by a lot of different folks so who were some of your uh some of your favorites oh well uh i mean may he rest in peace joe Sinnott was a uh a hero of mine as i was growing up as a kid you know i mean when when vinnie coletta stopped working on the fantastic four and then Joe came in with issue number 44 with the Inhumans and stuff. And it was, oh, my God, this stuff is beautiful again. Yeah. I mean, you know, Jack Kirby's had his share of anchors, you know. Yes. I, when I first thought, when I first came up with Jack Kirby, he was inked by Dick Ayers. And that's what I knew. And then when, right. when, when he when Dick left for whatever reasons and Stan put George Bell slash Russo's on Jack's pencils, it was a whole different ball of wax for me. I just didn't like it. Yeah. And it was, it seemed like George had to kind of like work on issue after issue to try and get the feel of, of Jack's pencils. And then be just as he might've been getting the, a better feel, then Chick Stone came in and he just, his line was very lyrical and, you know, it, was, it just cleaned up a lot of yeah. it. Uh, but my favorite, one of my favorite anchors, I would have to say for me was uh, Frank Giacoya. Oh, yeah. I loved his work on just about everybody. And when he inked me the couple of times that we worked together, as a matter of fact, the first uh, big comic book I drew was Green Lantern number 100, uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow. And there were two stories in the day. I did the front feature with Green Lantern. And uh, even though Vinny Coletta was credited as the anchor because he was the anchor of that book, Vinny was just so bogged down with so many assignments that... uh, Frank Giacoya inked everything in that story except for the faces. 
Really? Because when you looked at a Vinny face, you knew Vinny Finny Inky. <laughs> yeah. okay? So the non-astute eye would look at it and go, gee, these bodies look great, but I don't know what happened to the head. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and not that the faces look bad. It's just that I'm thinking, wow, if Frank they, is going to They look like Vinny. If Frank was going to ink the, the story uh, for, for the 98% of it, too bad he couldn't do the other 2%. That would have been great. <laughs> Um, but I, I really like Joe Sinnott, Frank Giacoya, mm. uh, the, the aforementioned Dennis Jensen, mm-hmm. uh, Joe Rubenstein was great on my work. Yeah. There was a, somebody that maybe not, not all too well known named Don Hudson, who I really enjoyed also. Um, um, oh gosh, I had one issue of, of DC Presents that was inked by Tony DiZuniga, which didn't look oh. like my work at all, but it was just a lot of fun to see it. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it was Superman and the Metal Men. And although Tony was a great inker, somehow the metal didn't shine all that much <laughs> when he inked it. He just had a sort of a, a little bit of a dry brush technique here and there. And the Metal Men didn't look that like they glistened too much. <laughs> um, but uh, let's see. Who else? Oh, gosh. A number of. Uh, well, let's see. Al Williamson actually inked me in a couple mm. of covers, which mm. was nice. Um, I had Eric Larson ink me once on a, on a cover of Web of Spider-Man. Um, Al Milgram. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, Sam recently... De La Rosa was a good, really good inker of mine, mm-hmm. on me too. I enjoyed his work. Um, there's probably a bunch of guys that I'm leaving yeah. off right now. Um, but, uh, you know, I've worked with a lot of really good guys. Yeah. And, uh, sometimes, you know, they... They bring, as I said, if they bring their own personality to the work and make it better, okay? Right. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm the best penciler in the world by far, okay? But when you kind of put your work into your efforts into it, and then when an anchor comes in and changes, changes things for what you think is doesn't look as good as it could have looked or should have looked, then it's a little bit uh, disappointing. Yeah. Well, you still want it to look like Alex Savia. You still want it to look like yes. your pencils with... Uh, an inker's personality over it right yeah. right yeah so uh, yeah crew you, got, you, you guys i will i will dominate the, the the all these questions here if you guys don't jump in with some yeah some questions yeah i have the fortunate uh, uh privilege that that alex and i don't live too far from each other so i get to see him when we're not in the middle of the plague i get to see him so you guys jump in here and ask him some questions i got a i got a couple um so you you were t- alex you were talking earlier about you know working with Jim Shooter and how, you know, you were kind of forewarned that it might be a little bit of a challenge. Did you feel it was, it was more demanding under his kind of guardianship or was that something that you just kind of hit the ground running? Could, could you describe or kind of get some Yeah, actually, um, I had been up at uh, Marvel when I was working at DC about 1980. Okay. Um, I lived in New York and I would get the New York times on Sunday all the time, just to check. They used to have a lot of art, uh, commercial art jobs in the art section, advertising art, occasionally for storyboards and things like that, which I also did besides comics. And so there happened to be an ad that said, you know, comic book company looking for illustrators to work on special projects with characters and stuff. And just a post office box number sent samples. And I figured, hmm, comic book, you know, whenever you, whenever we did special project comics, they always paid twice the rate or yeah. three times the rate. So you always wanted to, get in on those things because they were short term. Yeah. And so I sent in some comics, letter, a whole bit. 
And a, about a week later, I get a call from John Ramita Sr. at Marvel. And he goes, Alex, what's the matter? They're not giving you work? I said, oh, yeah, they're giving me work. But, I mean, I'm answering an ad in the New York Times. It didn't say Marvel Comics. He goes, <laughs> well, would you have time to do anything for us? I said, well, what is? what do you have? And he explained to me that they had a 32-page um, special project book that paid triple rate. And um, I said, say no more. <laughs> right. That's all you got to say. Yeah. And he said, he said, oh, he says, I'm so glad that you're interested because I know that you know Spider-Man and, you know, but I've had plenty of illustrators answer the call here and they're really good artists, but they'd come to me and they'd say, so who's Peter Parker? Oh, and, my God. And what does Spider-Man do? And give me his, let me have some comics so I can get his motivations. And he, he's thinking, they're never going to be able to draw this, you know? And so, yeah, <laughs> I got motivations. The, I, yeah, yeah. So I got the gig, but at any rate, I did meet Jim Shooter at that time mm-hmm. in his office. And, um, you know, he was talking about storytelling and he had his spinner rack right there and he pulled out Avengers number three. Mm-hmm. And he liked to talk about how Jack Kirby would do six panel grids because right. he didn't think that anybody needed all these highfalutin layouts and all this <laughs> other stuff. I mean, it was supposed to be a six panel grid and the top third was room for dialogue, which meant you now had a 16 by nine ratio bottom two thirds. Okay. As if you were watching television right. or a movie. And he pointed out to this one particular panel in the story where um, the Hulk was throwing the caboose of a train of a moving train at Iron Man And meanwhile, Thor was coming in from the other side and Giant Man was coming in from one side. And this was all in a in like a one six panel. And he was saying, see, now this is storytelling. You don't need these big giant panels. Uh, You know, you like to see all the action going on in the panel, you know, all these close ups and stuff that some people like. He says, that's not storytelling. So I kind of knew where he was coming from. Right. And so when I got up to Marvel the second time and they said to me, uh, Mike Higgins, the editor, said, he goes, hey, it's going to be a fill-in f- with Jim Shooter. I said, that's cool. I'll, I'll take it. He goes, well, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, again, he could be hard to work with. I said, I'm cool. Don't worry. I can adapt to anybody. So we had a discussion, and he said, well, here's my plot. And um, he says it's for 22 pages, but he says, I want you to go home and do thumbnails. And um, if you get, if, if it's 27 or 28 pages with your thumbnails, he said, don't worry about it. Bring it in. We'll go through it together and, you know, we'll weed it out and we'll edit it the whole bit and all that stuff. I said, okay, fine. So now Jim's plot read like a short story. I mean, mm. that's all it was. I mean, it didn't, it didn't start with, it started with page one. I think that the, the thing itself was about 11 or 12 pages of typewritten stuff mm-hmm. and it was just paragraphs and so I'm, dr- I'm riding home on the train from Marvel and I got my <laughs> pen out and as I'm reading it I'm just making a notation page one page two page three at the end of the story I got to page 22 and I said well <laughs> how about that okay <laughs> so I went home and I just sat down and I basically did it the uh, the so-called Neil Adams way I took a six by nine and I, you know, did it on eight and a half by 11. And Neil would then just blow it up on a projector and project it down. Okay. So I figured I'm going to do this whole I've story nice and tight in, you know, on an eight and a half by 11 sheet, six, you know, six by nine or seven by 10 and do it real tight, as tight as I can in that little form format, bring it in. And when I did, he looked at it and he goes, this is amazing. As a matter of fact, 
He says, I see now that I, I can get, you know, to expand this one section here where he goes to the moon and we could use a really big panel here. Hold on a second. And he gets on the phone and he says, he's like, advertising? Yeah, this is Shooter. Yeah, I need two more pages. <laughs> wow. wow. <laughs> so basically, it ended up being a 24-page story. And, um, you know, I said to him, hey, listen, when I expand this section, do you want me to, you know, come back? He goes, no, 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 I'll trust you. You'll, I'm sure you'll, you'll, you'll work it out fine. So anyway, I did the pencils. I went in. Unfortunately, he wasn't at the office or he was in a meeting at the time that I, that I got there. And so the editor said, yeah. Well, he approved the layout, so, you know, this looks really good. And then I was taking the train home, and I came back, and my wife says, oh, Jim Shooter's office called. I said, I was just there an hour ago. What's going on? She says, I don't know. You better call. So I called, and Jim got, was on the phone, and he said, hey, listen, you know, I really like what you did. And, and just to keep you here at Marvel, he says, I want to give you a $15 a page raise, right? you know, uh, to show, you know, in good faith that we really like your work, and we want you to continue with us. So I had no trouble with Jim Shooter whatsoever, wow. you know. That's, that's great. But that was the only time that I ever, that was the only time I got to work with him, um, okay? And, uh, and that was also the only time that in his office, I got to meet um, Steve Ditko for the one time. Wow. wow. So I walked in and, you know, they said, oh, um, oh, yeah, as a matter of fact, it was for that fill-in when I was with Mike Higgins. He goes, yeah, just wait in Jim's office. He'll be there in about 10 minutes and, uh, you know, just hang out there until he gets in. And I walk in and there was this gentleman who I kind of thought was Steve Ditko because I had seen a picture of him before. As a matter of fact, in the Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1, there was this cool little story at the back end, how Stan and Steve create Spider-Man. And Ditko drew a self-portrait of himself in there, drawing Spider-Man. And I'm going, <laughs> that looks like Steve Ditko. <laughs> <laughs> so at any rate, and sure enough, it was. And I was basically the fanboy. And I said, uh, I introduced myself to him. and. He kind of mumbled a little bit of something under his breath, and uh, and that was that. That that was me meeting Steve Ditko. Wow, wow, wow. that's very cool. Um, we got a question from YouTube from Thwip. He says, uh, "What was the process of working on the Amazing Spider-Man newspaper strip?" Oh, okay. The process was oh, now. Although Stan Lee was, you know, the first one to introduce the plot style, more or less, of comics where you don't work off a full script, the newspaper was done in a full script situation. And I think, I mean, I believe that at the beginning, Stan was writing it. But when I got there in 1997, I think he was maybe writing it for another year or two. And then he had ghostwriters working for him. I know Jim Salakrup worked for him for a couple of years. And then Roy Thomas actually started by around 1980. And so Roy was doing the scripts and then Stan would do his editorial magic on it to make sure it sounds exactly like Stan. <laughs> and so people really would not know the difference. But yeah. unfortunately, Roy never got a credit on the strip for all the years that he worked on. Wow. But what I would every two weeks, I would get um, I would get uh, a whole week or two weeks worth of dailies and Sundays. And the Sundays would be six panels. The dailies would be three panels a day. Mm -hmm. and uh, Monday through Saturday. And so you'd kind of have to read what was going on in between because the Sundays in a way were not continuous where sometimes I would draw a Sunday and at the bottom of the first, you know, of the sixth panel, it would say next week, the aftermath. And I'm going the aftermath. And so if I wouldn't read what was going on in between, 
I get to the first panel of the next Sunday, and in that panel, the cops are leading the villain away to the police cars. And I'm going, holy mackerel, I missed the whole fight. So then I got to read it, and I go, wow, Larry Lieber, Stan's brother, who was penciling at the t- when we first started uh, and had been penciling already, I think, oh, maybe he started, I started in 77. I think he started penciling that book in uh, the sun, the daily as of 1970 or 68 or something. Wow. And um, so he was on it for a really long time. And um, so I said, wow, Larry gets to draw all the cool stuff and I get to do the aftermath. What a bummer. <laughs> um, at least though, uh, that was 1997. But then in, I would say, does that answer your question, Whip, um, as far as how that goes? Six panel, six panel pages. I would pencil it out. I'd have to put in Greek in the, the word balloons at the top, just like you would normally. Whoever was speaking first would be on the left side of the panel. Okay. And all that stuff was done in pencil as space for the letter. And then I would end up sending it to, um, well, I'd send it back to California. Um, and then they would send it to, Stan would look over the artwork, then he'd send it to the letterer. Letterer would do his thing, and then they'd send it to Joe Sinna to eight. Um, so that's pretty much how it worked. Every two weeks when I was doing the Sundays, I'd get to, I'd spend, oh, about, I guess a day and a half or two days penciling out the two Sundays, send them off via FedEx. And that's how that started. And everything uh, and, was phone, fax, and FedEx back then. Yes, that's it. That's it. As a matter of fact, when, um, let's see, my contract was over with Marvel in 19, um, 1996, late 96, and then in early 97. In early 97, I got a. I got a phone call from Ralph Macchio, the editor, one of the editors up at Marvel. And he goes, hey, how would you like to work on the Spider-Man Sunday strip with Stan Lee? And I said, yeah, sure. I wasn't really working too much in comics anymore. And uh, so I figured, hey, just to keep my hand at it, might as well. So I sent Stan a couple of my Web of Spider-Man books with a, you know, introductory letter, etc. And then uh, those were the days where we, we used to have answering machines, you know, with the, with, with the tape. <laughs> The little little cassettes, right? right. Yeah. So my wife and I go shopping. Hi, Dan. Hey, thank you for the week. I'm gonna ask you for the week for now. Yeah, go right ahead. Would you get a deal on five one get one half off or something? No, I went to get the first pizza, and the guy says, "I'm really sorry, I forgot, and I burnt the one side of it, and I wouldn't sell it that way." So you want me to make you another one? I said, "Yeah, go ahead." And he goes, "Okay, fine. Then you can take that one home with you." So that was the way it worked. Um, <laughs> we'll be having pizza. We'll be, well, we'll be having a lot of pizza. Yeah. I had pizza um, tonight, too. <laughs> um, gee, I'm sorry. I got who's that guy. Yeah, who's that guy? That's Golden. I'm on a video call. Oh, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know where I lost my train of thought. Where was I? Um, oh, back in around 2003 in February, I remember I get a call from. Mike Kelly, who was, oh, okay, come here. Uh, Mike Kelly, hold on a second. Come here. Okay, my little dog, Snoopy, always Mm -hmm. likes to get in on the conversation. Okay. (laughs) Hey, bud, what's going on? Snoopy. So, um, yeah, Mike Kelly stands um, office assistant, calls up and says, hey, listen, um, we're kind of like in a frenzy here because – John Tartaglione, who used to be the regular anchor on the newspaper strip, the dailies, 
um, is got sick and he's in the hospital. Would you be able to ink a week? And I said, oh, yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, I have been inking my covers and stuff like that. So inking was not unfamiliar to me, but I was always inking myself and now I was going to ink somebody else. And, huh. uh, you know, it's kind of tough when, and again, I'm not the greatest artist in the world and I'm not the, the biggest critic, but if you see a drawing that just doesn't look like it's going to fit your rhythms, I couldn't just go ahead and ink it the way it was penciled. So I would kind of, I guess, embellish, if that's yeah. the word. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when I ended up finishing that and sending it in, they really liked it. And they said, oh, this is great. Hey, if we ever need you to do another uh, week of inks, would you be interested? I said, yeah, sure. No problem. It was fun. And um, that was February of 2003 or March. And then I think it was in early November, they called me up and they said, hey, listen, you know, John Tartaglione had passed away from cancer. That's why he was uh -huh. in the hospital in Feb early February, having some procedure done on his throat. And um, he ended up passing away. So they asked me if I would like to do the gig. And I said, of course, you know, hey, I mean, ink a week and pencil Sunday. Uh, that was a good like mainstay and yeah. still try to pick up other things. And so um, I was doing that from 2003 all the way on where I would ink Larry's pencils. Um, as time went on, I stayed, I got, I guess I'd stayed truer to them and just maybe if you want to call it, you know, fix a little of this or fix a little bit of that. And, uh, but pretty much, uh, I found inking to be very relaxing, you know, just, uh, I could, if I'm doing layouts or pencil in, well, the design part, I have to have quiet or maybe just some easy listening music in the background. But if I'm inking, I can watch a ball game. I can listen to television. <laughs> you can talk to me. You can oh, multitask. Can. Excuse me? You can multitask. I can multitask. Although sometimes <laughs> I do have to say this. After working on those dailies for so long, there would be times where I'd fall asleep at the table. <laughs> and I'd wake up just as my wife would come in. She'd go, Alex, are you okay? And I'd put my head up and I'd run a line right across the uh, the the daily, and I go, "Oh, geez, yeah, I'm okay. What'd you what'd you yell at me for?" She goes, I thought maybe you passed out or something. I said, "I don't know. I just I'm tired. I fell asleep." So then I'd have to go in there, and yeah, in Photoshop you can clean it up real easy. But then, yeah. of course, you got to go in there with whiteout anyway, right? Um, so um, and the process of inking the newspaper strip where there was a company in Orlando called Reed Brennan Media Associates. They're still there. And they're responsible for taking all the comic book strips or the comic strips for King Features. And they put them all together there. Okay. If they also, the dailies would get colored over there also. Um, so sometimes there was a disparity between the coloring of the dailies versus the coloring of the Sundays. Uh, the Sundays were actually being colored in a conventional or traditional way where if you recall 30 years ago, you'd get a, a reduced Xerox of a particular page. The colorist would go home with his Dr. Martin's dyes oh, yeah. or his markers, and he'd mark the damn thing up, and there'd be YB2s and BR1s yeah. and all this stuff in the margin, right? <laughs> well, that's how those Sundays were still being colored. That's why when I first – when my in my first – oh, there you go. Uh, I've still uh, got my Jameson color chart. Yeah, that's why in that first issue of Green Lantern that I drew – uh, Green Lantern was using uh, his beam, which is supposed to be green, uh, right. you know, maybe on page five or six. 
and it turned out to be yellow. Ooh. And I said to Julie Schwartz, I said, Julie, how can this bean be yellow? And he said, ah, the printer must have messed up or the colorist forgot to label it. And the printers don't think. They only take what's there. Right. And they go, okay, if that's yellow, well, then it's going to be a yellow, you know? <laughs> He's not there to call up and make corrections. Everything right. is booked on time. So that's pretty much uh, how that goes. Did I answer your question, Whip, or do you have any other questions to add? He has not. He's not said anything since then. I, I, I would. I'm yeah, I probably ask. put him to sleep, and he's not there anymore. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I, I would assume that you that you covered that. Okay. If I could squeeze in squeeze in another question, you know, sure. um, Alex. You know, I think I think what's interesting is you know, as you know, it's it, it's for some people it's really hard to break into the industry, but what people don't talk about is how hard it is to stay in the industry, and you have such an illustrious career. And to oh. be able to navigate and stay in the industry as long as you have on the same character, especially, I mean, could you kind of remark on that? Because that's not normal. That's very unique to your, your experience and your pedigree. Well, put it this way. Um, as I had mentioned before, I stayed with um, DC from 1977 to 1986, and then things didn't work out with the Superman books. So I ended up um, having to go to Marvel. And then Marvel, within a year or two, I, saw, I, I went under contract with them. And so, you know, every month there was a certain amount of work that I had to invoice for. And uh, because the royalty schedule at Marvel was so good that you would always get basically a third check at the end of the month, which was your royalty for the book. Um, Web of Spider-Man, um, for all the years that I worked on it, did, you know, ex- you know, I would say for me exceptionally well, because, you know, if I was making... X uh, one week and and another X the second week, uh, the third check would be bigger than the regular X's for the royalties. Mm -hmm. So you did really well. And then, um, you know, uh, at the time in 1990, well, let's see, when they were doing the hologram covers and all that stuff and stuff was really kicking in. I mean, the early 90s were, you know, pots of gold at the end of the rainbow. (laughs) Lots of money in the 90s. I mean, I was... uh, you know, when they told me that on Web of Spider-Man number 90, uh, which was the, the 30th anniversary of Spider-Man, it was a double-sized issue. And uh, I remember the editor calling me up and saying, okay, it, it sold 790,000 copies in the direct oh, And I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, and what about, and then he says, and then there'll be newsstand returns and all that other kind of stuff later. I said, oh, wow. So I can recall um, without, you know, without mentioning numbers, because I don't like to do that. Right. Um, but, you know, I used to have direct deposit and I'd call up my bank every two weeks and I'd say, did my, did my check come down? Yes. And they tell me what the amount was, which, and it was an expected amount. I said, okay, fine. And even the royalties were in a particular range. Okay. Right. And then for the royalty on that big monster book, I said, oh yeah. Could you tell me what the, um, you know, what the check check is? And there was this pregnant pause. And I said, hello, are you still there? And they gave me the number. And I said, very nonchalantly, oh, okay, thanks. And I got <laughs> off the phone. I said, yes! You know, I just want to know. And I told, I told when my wife came home, I said, you cannot. I said, I got to tell you something. And of course, when I told her, she goes, you're lying. I said, no, I'm not lying. I said, this is just a, kind of the luck of the draw here. But at any rate, um, this was the early 90s, and I only was with Marvel until 1996. And huh. then I, um, what happened was 
1993, they took me off of Web of Spider-Man mm-hmm. because they said, well, the sales are starting to go down. We've given you a new writer. We've given you a new anchor. And the sales aren't going up. So now the administrative big guys upstairs said, well, we got to make another change. So the only logical thing left is to change the penciler. If you want to yell, go right ahead. And I said, well, if I yell, will I get my book back? And they said, no. I said, well, then I'm not going to belittle myself and waste your time either. So, you know, it is what it is. They said, but we have another book for you to do. I said, you do? Yeah, it's a Spider-Man book. I said, well, wait a second. You're taking me off a Spider-Man book that I've been working on for seven and a half years, and you're giving me another Spider-Man book. Wow, you guys are very trustworthy, aren't you? (laughs) And they said, oh, this is based on the animated series, and it's not part of the conventional, um, you know, Marvel universe and yada, yada. And I figured, well, you know, it's based on this. And they wanted, but they said, you can draw it in your regular style. As a matter of fact, you can even pencil and ink it if you like. And I said, really? So I figured, well, that sounds like a pip. Yeah, let me try that. Now, I'm not John Byrne where I can whip out three penciled and inked books a month. I don't know how the <laughs> hell he did that. But I had trouble penciling and inking one book a month, okay? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, with all the time and details and, you know, you're working on your baby. You're putting your name on it. You know, right. this, is, this is your stuff, Okay. And um, it was just long hours, just longer than I wanted it to be. But then I thought, wow, I'm working on number one and number two. And, you know, with the royalties coming in, I should be able to buy a new car. Well, the royalties on the first issue were probably about as good as one royalty check for Web of Spider-Man on the regular monthly basis. Mm -hmm. And then the second one dwindled down to about a third of that. And there was nothing for the third one on. Yeah. But I was still in the contract. I had kids. I had bills. So I figured, hey, you know what? I'm on the contract and I got a job. I can't complain. Right. Um, it only That only lasted for about two and a half more years. And then they, those books weren't selling. So they canceled them and nobody else had work for me at Marvel. So then mm-hmm. I ended up, uh, um, well, Jim Salakrup had already left uh, the editorship of uh, Spider-Man. Right. And we, he went over to Topps Comics. Right. And at Tops, he was doing all kinds of stuff, plus the X-Files. So when I called him up and I said, hey, Jim, I got to get off my contract because I can't work for anybody else if I'm on the contract. So he says, well, if you get out of your contract, he says, you want to come here and draw the X-Files. You know, you can have that book because um, the people in California, the 1013 X-Files company, they're not that happy with the artist we have now because of the likenesses and you know, you'll, I know you'll be able to do likenesses because I worked on this book with Jim called Sledgehammer for two issues, one from the Sledgehammer television series. Yeah. And they gave me the photographs and I basically, you know, drew the likeness from whatever they had there for me. And so I was familiar with that process. And so, yeah, when I got to the X-Files, um, it was, I was there only for a year and a half, but then, and then the movies came, the movie came out and then all of a sudden the company said, well, we're going to be concentrating more on on more TV episodes and movies, so we're not going to be able to approve scripts anymore with any regularity. So basically, the the book folded. Once the book folded, that's when my comic book career, Curtis, is was pretty much in jeopardy. And then shortly after that, thankfully though, I did get uh, to work on. I get got that call that I had mentioned about doing the Spider Man Sundays. Uh, One thing about Stan, Stan Lee is very loyal to the people he works with. So the fact is, is that 
if you know if Stan was still alive today, I'd still be working on the Spider-Man Sundays and the the, the daily strips today. Okay, so that's in that sense, I you know I was keeping my hand in American comics, but also as far as other comics are concerned, um, I had uh, when I was up at Marvel in '86. One of the things that they gave me to draw was uh, a book called The Defenders of the Earth, which was uh, Flash Gordon, Phantom, Mandrake the Magician, Lothar. That was a lot of fun because I was a big Phantom fan from Cy Barry days back in the old, in the early 60s and whatever. Um, and so I got to draw the Phantom for a while, which was cool. But then they that book only lasted four issues and uh, four printed issues. Um, and in the fourth issue, there was a section on Mandrake's origin, which uh, Mike Higgins was writing. And I said, <clears throat> he said, I really don't know too much about Mandrake. Uh, what could you, do you know anything more about him? I said, well, I watched a cartoon, so I, I just saw that episode. I mean, I could, I could plot that out for you. He goes, oh, that'd be great. So I did, the, I plotted out the, uh, the origin of Mandrake section in, you know, in, in two pages there uh, for him. And then by the time we got to the fifth issue, he wrote the, he plotted out the first six pages. And then he, he said, okay, well, listen, um, here are some key points to hit. You know, you can go ahead and plot out the last 16 pages. And I said, what? Uh, I mean, believe me, when you have to do it for somebody else and it's not your baby, it's really not, it's not the easiest thing in the world to, uh, you know, to come up with all of a sudden hitting these key moments putting a whole story together. It, I got it done. I had notes all over the margin, like the old Jack Kirby days and stuff <laughs> like that. But um, it was a daunting task to say the least. And unfortunately that story never got printed. Um, <laughs> it got inked by Fred Fredericks, the regular inker. Um, and then lo and behold, I'm going to say about a half a dozen years ago, I get this package, this FedEx package from Marvel that has some weight to it. And I'm going, huh, what could this be? And it was that issue of Defenders of the Earth that never saw print that was completely inked, you know, by Fred Fredericks. And, you know, they just sent me back all the artwork. Wow. And mm -hmm. it was okay for me to get that artwork because when I was work, usually when I was working with an inker on a regular basis, I would always say, hey, listen, uh, pretty much since it's like a 60-40 or a 65-35 split, how about if for every three issues we do together, I'll keep two and you keep one. So as it turned out with the defenders, um, with Fred, I said, look, I'll take issue one. You take issue two. I'll take three. You take four. And then basically I felt justified in saying, okay, well, I guess I'm getting number five, uh, which I did. Um, uh, the covers, uh, for some reason or other, I got all the covers, but, and I didn't complain. Um, but um, at any rate, so uh, with the Phantom, as I'm going on again, I found out that some American guys like Dick Giordano and Bob McLeod were working for a Swedish company called uh, Egmont again. Oh, no, the German company when I was doing Superman was called Ehapa. Egmont was a Swedish, I think, like a subsidy of, uh, of Ehapa. And so they were publishing comics, and one of them was the Phantom. Uh, the Phantom is published there every two weeks. And they would have about, I think, well, out of the 26 issues, um, maybe they'd have 18, 18 or 19 new stories. And then the other stuff would be reprints. And besides reprinting old Phantom strips, they would also reprint a lot of European comics. 
uh, Italian stuff, whatever, whatever came by. So you got to see all this really cool European stuff. Um, and the Europeans, they're really, they're really crazy in their way. They, they do pages where, you know, I found out that some of these artists in Europe, they'll draw two pages a week. And I'm going two pages a week. How the hell can you make a living doing that? Well, if you looked at the pages, there would be nine to 12 panels on each page. Mm. And every panel would have backgrounds wherever the heck they were in. If they were in France, there'd be buildings and streets and cars and everything. They just, you had to have backgrounds. You couldn't do American comics where you would have, let's say the first panel would be an establishing shot. So we know where we are. And then throughout the rest of the page, we just throw in a couple of props from wherever we are to remind you that, hey, listen, we're still here, okay? Yeah. Um, or, or if you're a manga, so, just all the little action lines, right? Yeah, or whatever, <laughs> you know? I mean, in speaking, and when speaking with some people, uh, some people like to put backgrounds in every panel. I feel that sometimes it's distracting, okay? It, it's not necessary to have that there if you're, you know, doing some action um or whatever but hey those those you know that's just my my particular opinion the way it worked um i i I feel it worked pretty well although with the newspaper strip again in answering whip's question if he's still around because you only have six panels there would usually be a background in every panel because the reader only had six panels to deal with on a weekly basis Mm -hmm. so you always wanted to make sure that he kind of knew where he was going to be Unless you, unless I did draw a close-up that kind of filled up the half, uh, three quarters of the frame, then I felt like, okay, I don't need to draw a piece of a window in the background or a bookcase with eight books on it. Okay, <laughs> uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't feel that was necessary. But um, so I found out that Dick Giordano, Bob McLeod, and Paul Ryan were working for the Swedes doing the Phantom, and not that I was going to call any of those guys up and say, hey. I hear you're working on the Phantom. How about giving me the contact info so I can I can hone in there too? I just that's kind of like moving in on somebody else's girlfriend. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, we, we don't want to do that. So I, in a roundabout way, I was able to find out there was this organization called the Friends of the Phantom, and I got in touch with uh, this one guy who was the president. He goes, "Oh yeah, I know the publisher of Eggmont. I'll give you his contact information." And then I said, "Ah, voila, okay." So I put together yeah. some samples, uh, some penciled samples, and I, you know, emailed them over. And the next day, the guy called me and t- emailed me back. And he goes, hey, when can you start? I have a script for you. And I said, oh, this is great. This was 2004. And but he had such a huge stable of artists that were primarily European and uh, South American that um, I got to draw one, maybe two books a year. But there were 32 pages. And between doing that, and working on the strip and uh, some storyboards and stuff uh, here and there for some advertising work because I had an agent getting me that kind of work. I still filled up my weeks. So to answer your question, Curtis, yeah, if it wasn't for the fact that I branched out and got into the European market um, the and the fact that I was lucky enough to kind of hook up with Stan Lee and do that Spider-Man stuff, you know, my career would probably not have spanned 44 years. I don't know what I'd be doing now, but... Uh, Maybe I'd be selling cards. <laughs> uh, and Thwip, Thwip says yes. Uh, you answered the question. So okay, fantastic. Yeah, Curtis, did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, you did. I, I mean, I would, I would venture to say, if I, if I can just comment, I'm sure you had to be a really, really reliable artist 
to keep employed that whole time? I mean, you know, that there's was, circumstance, but that's a big part, To be part, honest right? with you, that was, I would probably say since I'm a, I consider myself to be like a, a good journeyman type artist, you know, who meets the deadlines. And yeah, quite honestly, as I said before, going to Marvel, you'd have a lot of these prima donna guys that would miss deadlines all the time. And so they would need fill-ins. So then the, you know, the, the artsy the company, guys, the fanboys, the fanboy artists, they're getting, they miss deadlines, but the guys who want to get paid all the time and have them call you back, they will get, those were guys like me and we did our jobs and we went ahead and, uh, you know, uh, so like, yes, reliability was, I yeah. would say, one of my main factors to keep my career going. Mine. I never missed the deadline. Well, there you go, Barb. Yeah. I wasn't the greatest thinker in the world, but I was a, I was a workhorse. And if they were falling behind or needed some fill-ins, my phone was always ringing. Yeah, I remember actually when I first got in on, uh, on to do Web of Spider-Man, um, it was funny because... I was working on that fifth issue of Defenders of the Earth and doing finishing up those pencils. And I remember getting a call from my my new buddy at the time, Howard Mackey. And he said, <laughs> hey, listen, Jim Salakrup needs somebody to fill in on Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man. You know, would you be interested? I think you'd be good for that book. I said, Howard, I'd love to work on it, but I got to finish this first. I can't just drop this because I have a chance to draw Spider-Man. If you could explain to Jim... Hey, listen, I'm going to need another week or 10 days to finish this up. If he can wait that long, great. If he can't, well, then he'll have to get somebody else. So now I, I did what I could to finish up within two weeks, actually, um, to get that book done. And then after that, I called up Jim and I said, hey, Jim, do you still, would you still need me to draw Spider-Man? He goes, oh, yeah, you, you, you're available? I said, yeah, well, I, was, I had to finish that book. He goes, hey. I respect that. Yeah, I still need I still need somebody to do these fill-ins. So I I did I did three Sp amazing Spider-Man Adventures fill-ins, uh, which was kind of fun at the time. And then after I did those, um, back to back to back, he says, "Hey, I have a uh, Web of Spider-Man fill-in two-parter to do. If you're interested." I said, "Yeah, sure." So I did that, and then um, he goes, "Okay, how about this was Web 35 and 36?" He goes okay, how would you like to do um, another fill-in? I said, sure. Uh, he goes, we have number 39. I said, 39? I said, what happened to 37 and 38? <laughs> he says, well, our regular guy is working on 37. And then while you're doing 39, we want him to jump on 38 because he's a little slow. I said, okay, fine. So I finished 39 and I came back in and I said, hey, um, okay. So he says, hey, you want to work on another one? I said, sure. What do you got? He goes, Web 38. I said, Web 38. I said, what happened to the other guy? He says, he's still working on 37. I said, good God. So, I mean, I did 39, but now 38 is going to be late. How much time How much time do I have to get that done? He goes, um, how much time do you think you need? I said, two weeks. He goes, wow, that would be amazing. I said, okay. <laughs> so, um, I and unfortunately, that, that story in Web 38 had to deal with the Lincoln Tunnel. What's the matter with you? Hey, come on. Um, how, many of you, how many of you jumped on Google to see uh, who was a penciler? <laughs> he was talking about. <laughs> um, so at any rate, uh, with uh, the story in Web 38 uh, took place around the Lincoln Tunnel, 
And well, we didn't have the internet in, that, in those days. Yeah. And all my New York books had very, very little reference on the Lincoln Tunnel. So I actually had to go into New York City with a camera. And I figured, <laughs> okay, well, I'll just hang out around the entrance and get those shots that I need. Lo and behold, there was a brick wall that was set about six feet tall around the entrance that was a drop down into the Lincoln Tunnel. And I had to kind of jump up and hang on this freaking wall and try to get the pictures that I needed. I was just waiting for a cop to come by and pull me over and say, hey, get in the back here. What are you doing? So I lucked out and I was able to get the reference shots that I needed. And I ended up doing the story in two weeks. And um, well, lo and behold, uh, then they said, hey, listen, we have a four part story now, Web of Spider-Man story, if you're interested, by Peter David. And I said, oh, oh yeah, I'd love to work on a Peter David. Plus, I'm thinking job security for four months. That's really cool. Right, yeah. Yeah, okay. So I'm working on this fill in. And I think by the time we got to the fourth issue, I'm always reading the letter columns. And in the letter column, that they finally got to my first, uh, they got to the, you know, the issues of web that I worked on. So I always like to hear what people have to say. You know, it's always nice if somebody doesn't like rake you through the coals and say, wow, this guy sucks. We need somebody else. Thankfully, that wasn't the case. Um, but um, I remember this one guy saying, wow, you know, I really like the team that you got going there now. Um, and uh, And the answer was, yeah, well, there are regular guys. I'm, going, I'm the regular guy. So I called up Jim Salak up and I said, hey, Jim, I just read in a letter column that I'm the regular guy on Twitter Spider. He goes, well, I figured you would have known that by now. I said, well, I don't take anything for granted. You never said, hey, you know what? You're the regular guy. Let's get you going. He goes, oh, no. I said, he goes, we had to fire the other guy because he just couldn't meet a deadline. So you know, the book is yours. I said, okay, sounds cool. Wow. So this, that was comparable to, to Gina Carano finding out that she got fired from the Mandalorian <laughs> on the internet. Twitter, yeah. <laughs> reverse, reverse. <laughs> they didn't tell it to her face. They just said, hey, you're off, you're off the series, you know? But I, I think, I think what you and Barbara are saying about being reliable, I mean, yeah. You know, there's the people that are have those spikes, right, of creativity, or they spend all this time and they have that one issue. But in my opinion, and it may not be popular, like the best artists are the ones that are reliable. The best ones are the ones that define a run of a series consistently. You know, right. I mean, I think any, I think, I think the people that are consistent could probably potentially easily invest all that reliability into one catastrophically amazing issue, but they wouldn't be the people that can fill in day and day out you know and i think that's kind of the unsung heroes of the industry is people who do that you know yeah so. and, and i think too uh you know to piggyback on that curtis i think uh that's part of what fans like they they you do something they like they want more if you only give them the one thing if you only can do 22 pages in a year then you know they've got a short memory because there's so much good stuff out there and there's that regular stuff when you got the regular guy that oh look at this look at this every month i get this i get to consume this regular guy you know yeah okay. I, mean, I was basically a one and a half page a day type guy all right and um <laughs> that was that that could get the that got the work done and now you know i remember going to san diego for the first time in 2003 and I have all the respect in the world for Rags Morales, okay? Mm. Fantastic artist, great guy. And he was sitting next to me in San Diego. And, um, I mean, I loved what he was doing on Hawkman at the time. And I'm going, wow. 
this stuff was so highly detailed, the lighting and every panel, all the stuff. And I said, Hey, so regs, how, how many pages a week, you know, do you, how many pages, a, you know, do you do? He goes, well, I do two pages. And I'm thinking he was going to say two pages a day. He said, I, he goes, I do two to three pages a week. I said, what? Two to three pages a week. He goes, Oh yeah. The editors want me to give it my best stuff. And they're very patient with that. And so, you know, I'll, I'll do, you know, however, two, three issues over a period of time. In the meantime, they've got a couple of other issues planned with a few other pencilers. Okay. So you didn't have runs on books with regular guys that yeah. just didn't have that particular, I don't want to say, I don't want to say work ethic is the proper terminology because I didn't ask him how long his days were. I mean, right. that's the one thing. Yeah. You ask an artist, Hey, um, how many, you know, how many pages can you do a day? And if he goes, well, I can do three pages a day. You go, really? And I go, well, what time do you start working? And what time do you finish? I asked that question to Alfredo Alcala once, if everybody, if anybody yeah. is familiar with his work. Okay. And Alfredo coming from the Philippines, just like so many of the other Filipino guys, they got paid squat down there. So they had to draw pencil and ink three pages a day just to make a living. Okay. <laughs> So I said, well, when do you, he goes, I start at, you know, nine o'clock in the morning and I finish at, you know, midnight. So 15 hours. 15 hour day. I used to to eat two pages a day and I I put in a 12 to 16 hour day. So I want to, I want to kind of circle back around to this. Uh, It's, uh, we're at the halfway mark. Roberta, are you coloring? I am. Do you want to share? We'll, we'll swap. I could share. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Flatting, so it's kind of boring. That's okay. Well, hey, so, Peter, Peter, I like I like that getup you got there, where you got your camera just like facing down on the board. That's kind of neat. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit annoying because I want to look at the page and I have to. <laughs> so I just have to lean to the side and try not to distort what I'm drawing. But um, beat your shape Robert, too, didn't you? And yeah, Robert, I took it. How you to put share this with up. us? Do you have a contraption too, where you got your camera over your shoulder or something? No. Uh, I've got a light up here. I've uh, I recently came into money. I won't lie, and I bought myself a new desk and a new light, and so I'm 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 set up. I've got you no money buy, left. It's because Mama wants new shoes. System, yeah, right. <laughs> okay. You didn't buy yourself an assistant, did you? Oh, you know what? That would be great. I don't know what I'd get them to do. <laughs> I don't know anyone near my page, so they just have to. Uh, oh, okay. Make me make me coffee. Oh, okay. So, is this the initial? Is this the initial part of coloring? By is this called oh, the flatting yeah. part? Yeah. Okay. So what? Let me show. This is a two-page. So who did we lose? It's just starting. Oh, did you? My, lose uh, it? Oh, gotcha, gotcha. My uh, yeah, I can take it off now. I can, I can move this thing out of my face. All right. So this is a two-page spread. Okay. Splash page. And I'll give you a start. So here we are. These characters are um, are Still ones that I'm just deciding here yeah, on their yeah. outfits. And I haven't done, done the initial decisions yet on coloring. But I want to get everything outlined and everything, you know, together so I can make those decisions right. quickly. And Alex, so the plotting process is just outlining all of it and getting it all started. Right. Separated. And this is a page penciled by uh, Pete and yes. uh, inked, inked by Thomas Formanti. 
Oh, okay. So I didn't I didn't do this in a day. Um, <laughs> no. you've, you've given Roland high expectations uh, page and half Peter you have some seriously complicated work here so I am actually toning it down a little bit it's, there's too many lines and things. you, you kind of you, you got to take the, uh, the, the Savic approach right you got to get some good details and then that, that panel with very little uh, but you know the, one of the things you were kind of talking about Alex I kind of want to uh, um, ask you uh, some opinion here, and you know, we can, everybody can kind of uh, toss in. So, you know, one of the things that that I kind of go back to in comics is, I, and, and you've kind of mentioned it several times tonight, is that you know this is a this is a business, and and, and we are trying to, you know, ideally that you're you're trying to, you know, sell comics and and sell lots of copies so that you can make money. At what point in time, as an artist, do you decide, okay? I'm putting too much time into every page. I need to learn to cut some corners here and there. Um, how do you decide what corners to cut? How do you decide? I mean, so, you know, where, where do you draw the line between I'm going to be an artist and this is the best representation of my work and this is a business. I need to get these pages done. Um, I think it's just, I guess for me, it was just a, sort of like um, where I was in a particular moment. And for me to explain that, I'd have to say that in looking at my, I want, I want, I want to say my, uh, my, my heroes, my influences, the guys that I really liked, except for Neil Adams, were never really that heavy into detail. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at Gil Kane, and yeah, when, when Gil Kane inked his own work, there was there was a lot of lines going on in there, which, quite honestly, they they didn't. In some cases, they didn't all need to be there, depending upon who inked it. Okay, the lines would be there. They might be embellished in a different way. Uh, Gill was all about structure. John Romita, his work, as beautiful as it is, is very simplistic in its presentation. Hmm. Uh, Ross Andrew, another hmm. one of my mentors, when I worked on the Flash. Um, at DC Comics, Ross was the editor. And so I have to count him as a mentor because he taught me a lot in those seven months that I worked on The Flash. And even though his work was detailed in, this, in the fact that he was a stickler on realism when it came to backgrounds. I mean, he I remember he did a story in the Brooklyn Navy Yard that Marv Wolfham had written on a Spider-Man story. And, and Ross... Just like I went down to the Lincoln Tunnel, Ross went down to the Brooklyn Navy Yard with his camera, and he was climbing all over the place. He said, hey, the guys were saying, what are you doing? Uh, well, I'm working on a story on Spider-Man. And of course, you know, even back then, people would go, oh, really? Comic Spider-Man? That's so cool. Go ahead. So he was I need an aerial shot, so I'm climbing to the top. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Frank Miller, when he first started drawing Daredevil, he was on, you know, he was living in Hell's Kitchen, and he went up on the rooftops, and he was taking pictures. Of all those cool <clears throat> things that you find on roofs that normally you wouldn't imagine the shapes on some of these vent things and whatever. Water happen. towers, Peter. Water towers. I love, I oh, love you got to have water <laughs> towers. Exactly. Yep. He, he loves um, water towers. Water towers. I always try to throw a water tower into you know my cityscapes only for the sake of a change of pace. Because yep. after a while, you get, even though John Romita told me a long time ago, that a building is like a character. Every building, for the most part, especially in a big city, is different. 
Mm. You're not, you, I mean, they might be sort of rectangular in base, but they've got outcroppings. There's design work going on. And nowadays, if you look around at certain buildings, you, you know, you've got rounded sculpting going on and all kinds of windows and glass sheets and everything. And it's a lot different than let's say New York city and some of the, you know, uh, when I first started drawing it, but um, uh, I was never, I was always one to, let's say I was never like super detailed because I didn't, I found that, you know, that old adage about less being more, as long as you had the, the drawing, the drawing can shine by just having the proper outline on your figure, as opposed to having to throw in all this extemporaneous stuff. And if I get detailed, I usually try to, you know, limit my details to, um, you know, maybe a little feathering on some musculature. Uh, I like to do double lighting. So if you got double lighting, you're Mm -hmm. automatically going to be prone to detail, depending upon where the light source is and how that thing's bouncing around. Okay. So, um, I would say, and then when I was drawing the Phantom, I mean, the Swedes were, and the Australian guys, uh, where the Phantom is very highly popular, they were, their god is Cy Barry, who was drawing the Phantom for about 30 or 35 years. And Cy's work are beautifully drawn, but only detailed to the point of necessity. You know, nothing extraneous about Cy, Cy Barry's work. So, I mean, the Phantom... You know, the Phantom had broad shoulders and he looked like a freaking powerful guy, but you didn't see the outline of every muscle in his back and the outline in his abs or even on his arms. You knew that the guy was a big guy. He was wearing a he was wearing a goddamn sweatshirt in Africa for Pete's sakes, okay? Um, and what's his name? Uh, Alex Raymond, he did the same thing with Flash Gordon. Flash mm-hmm. Gordon just looked like a very athletic, strong, well-built guy. And he didn't have muscles coming through all of his clothing and stuff. So unless you're not wearing a shirt or if you're wearing, <coughs> excuse me, spandex, I mean, why do you need to show all those particular muscles? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm self-taught to a point where I guess just like Alex Ross, my Bible was uh, Andrew Loomis's figure drawing for all it's worth. Okay. And he stresses muscular groups in there without having to go into all the major details of every one of these muscles. And there are some artists that just want to show off their, you know, uh, an anatomical affinity by giving you every little muscle that's popping out here and there. And when it's doing this <laughs> and when it's doing that, and they're still wearing, they're still wearing clothes for Pete's sakes, you know? And then there's you're guys pre- who, to Pete now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and then you got, uh, you know, I mean, clothing, uh, clothing has to be on top of a muscular, on top of the body. And, you know, if you're going, if you have to learn how to draw those folds. I mean, Dick Giordano gave me a lesson a long, long time ago on folds. And he goes, hey, you know, just watch. Watch how folds go. And to this day, if, well, not so much now, but when I used to sit on a train or on a bus or wherever, you just kind of looked, uh, just would not try to follow what the folds were doing on somebody's arm. You know, if you're if you got a jacket on, and so you, you were the, you were the creeper up, on the uh, on the trains, right? Why is that guy staring at me? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know. I got stared 14 times. No, I'm only kidding. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, but, it's funny though because in that same example, you know, I, I will tell my students that uh, because they're writing students, but I'm like, look, you got to listen to conversations 
when you're out and about in your in your you, whatever you're doing, go to a restaurant. You got to listen to the people you know sitting in the booth beside you because you have to understand how people talk. Now we don't write real dialogue in in comics because that would be bad and boring, right? We we write entertainment dialogue, right? But you still have to understand how it works in real life. That oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I like reading books by you know, Richard Patterson, because I find the dialogue to be very convincing. Um, I've read novels by other people where as soon as they come across a certain point where they have to read, they want to now show you how, how well-versed they are in, histo- in history, <laughs> and they go for three, th- for three pages on the historical background of this scene that they're in, and that just bores me to tears. You know, you can tell me about it. Give me a paragraph. But don't go whacked out. I like reading dialogue, the interplay between characters. Right. Yeah. You know? Um, whenever, you read, like, uh, whenever, you read whenever Robert I... Parker with, you know, Jesse Stone. And it's just bam, bam, bam. And, you know, Jesse was very laconic, you know. But still, there was some dialogue there, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, I am not, I am very opposed to writers in comics who decide that story, great storytelling is three pages, nine panels per page of the same faces looking Talking at each heads. other with oh. different dialogue balloons over their heads. And then by the, by let's say the nine eighty by the 27th panel, both guys like all of a sudden turn and maybe face the reader or turn away from the reader and, you know, exit the, exit the scene. That's, <laughs> That's not storytelling. I'm sorry. That's, you know, that's baloney. But then again, I'm old school. Okay. So, um, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, being taught by Will Eisner at the school Mm. of visual arts Yeah. and, uh, you know, reading those kinds of comics and stuff. I mean, to think that when I was a little kid, uh, a full 25 page story was such a rarity. You know, the first one I ever read was the death of Superman three chapter, you know, novel. That's what they called it on the cover because every, every Batman book, every Superman book would have three stories in it, three yeah. eight page stories, or maybe two eights and a nine. And Gil, uh, Green Lantern would nine times out of 10 be two, two stories, you know, mm-hmm. a 12 pager and another 13 pager. Um, and they were all self-contained. Yeah. Once in a blue moon, you get a three chapter book that you go, wow, the story is just going on and on, and it's really cool, you know. Uh, but, you know, people nowadays, they just seem to, it, it's different. Yeah. And I'm not opposed to it, but, you know, the fact is, is that in the old days, if you missed a comic, oh, well, I missed that comic. Maybe I'll trade with somebody else sometimes if I ever come across it. Now, if you miss an issue or two, you're lost. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, because they don't have a really good inside of the front cover what has gone before paragraph, you know, like when you're watching TV on the last episode of the Watchmen (laughs) and they show you the synopsis of what happened, you know, speaking of, speaking of what happened before, has anybody seen the the new Perry Mason series on HBO yet? I have not. Oh man. It was really well done. Very well done. Mm. Check it out. Bart, you were saying? Oh, I was saying when he was telling a, a how to learn to do the art, you know, keep it simple and, and doing the folds of cloth. I've had a lot of 
people come up to me and say, I want to be a comic book artist. How do I go about doing it? And I always tell them the same thing. First of all, you, you learn to draw from real life. Right. Don't learn to draw from comic books. That's the worst. Yeah, because everybody has an impressionistic way of, let's say, doing their folds. Right. Okay. Okay. And, uh, you know, you can do folds with straight lines. You could do folds with some feathering to soften things up. Uh, but you have to know where those folds originate. Once you get that down, then you're in, then you're in fairly good shape. Um, so... Yeah, I think there's too many com or too many artists out there who have learned to draw comics by studying comic books. Right. And that's the wrong way to do it. You need to yeah, reverse so, that. Yeah, so, you know, when you look at, when you think about, um, we were talking, you guys were talk, mentioning earlier, Barry Smith. Jeez, you remember, you remember those early issues of Barry Smith drawing Daredevil and all mm -hmm. that stuff where he was mimicking Jack Kirby? And it really wasn't a good mimic either. Uh, but... <laughs> He got into comics. Stanley hired him and said, "Hey, you know you're drawing the Marvel way, kid. This is great." Um, so, and then you know Barry ended up saying, "I think I want to learn how to draw," and uh, you know we all saw the results of that. Yeah. See. Uh, but yeah, that's. I mean, so John Buscema, you know, he went to um, the Art Students League, as did Gene Colan. They all learned how to draw from life. You know, when John Buscema draws, you know, there was, there's some great pit panels of, let's say, Loki uh, sitting on the throne. And you could just tell that all his weight is on in his butt as yeah. he's sitting in there slouching. And he's got his arm over here. and mm -hmm. His hand is just dangling on the other, you know, point of, of, the, of the throne. And his legs are just really loose and relaxed. Hey, same thing. It's like, yeah. you know, you see somebody drawing somebody in a room and he's sitting on a couch unless that couch is made out of rock the the you know the cushions have to give right so if you if the guy has some certain amount of weight to him and he sits on that cushion to show that he's got weight and he wants to relax if i don't have a model i mean i i kind of throw myself into the couch and i just feel like okay let's see what would i do if i was really tired and how would i sit in this couch and, um, you know, you kind of get to feel that way. I, I mean, in years past, many a times I put on a jacket and I'd look in the mirror to see what the folds were doing as I lifted my arms up. Mm -hmm. You know, people draw jackets where they lift their arms up and, you know, the sleeve is still around the wrist. You know, you move your arm up and it, it's down here and yeah. they forget to do that. You know, I always I always like to look for stuff like that because I'm thinking, <laughs> wow, you're not making sense here, buddy. But, you know. <laughs> I love it. Thanks. Pete, you were about to say something? Um, I was going to say, what's a Perry Mason? <laughs> what's a Perry Mason? I oh, don't know that. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a detective, uh, it's a detective series set in the 1930s. Oh, oh that does sound quite interesting. In fairness. Yeah. It's a period piece. Uh, back in the fifties and sixties, uh, Perry Mason was a TV show. Yeah. Um, Remember, where, he was already an, a, an attorney, okay, and he always won the case. You know, he never, Perry Mason never lost. He was always going up against the DA. The DA would lose cases week after week. I'm surprised he still had a job <laughs> after all the seasons that Perry Mason was on. Uh, but this series is basically in the, in the 1930s, and Perry is still a private investigator. And so, you know, 
he gets kicked around and stuff trying to solve this case. And uh, it's, it's, it's pretty intriguing. The acting is first rate. Story is really good. Um, well, it's kinda, produced by it Robert Downey episodes. Jr. Excuse me? It's, it's produced by Robert Downey Jr. Oh. Oh, yes, I yes. That. I remember. Of course, Barb would know that. Did you see it, Barbara? <laughs> I don't Barbara, watch did it. Did you see it? No, I don't. I don't get, I don't get uh, that channel. But oh, Netflix. I took, oh, it, it's on Netflix? I'll have to look it up then. Oh, no, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I just, um, when I got my wife an iPhone for her birthday last year in June, um, they gave us a free year of HBO Max. And yeah, so HBO. we got the benefit of seeing all this HBO stuff now, probably until June. Um, but by then, you know, I'll get to see King Kong versus Godzilla. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, a couple of other things that are coming out in March. So that's kind of cool. I only get to see uh, the stuff on Netflix and Disney Plus because I have my son's password. <laughs> yeah. Uh, nobody's given me that Disney Plus password yet, although my family members have it. But I'm just, I figure if they're not going to offer it to me, I'm not going to say, hey, can you give me your password? No. Hey, I'm the uncle here. If you have well, it, you want to give it to share with your uncle, that's fine. But if not, the hell with you. No. Yeah. fortunately my son and i have exactly the same taste in movies so he'll go mom have you seen this i'm like no i don't get netflix oh well i'm gonna give you my password i'm like oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i the remember same, my daughter mandalorian gave, came along my said, daughter gave this? me her netflix password uh just the same year that daredevil came out on netflix and I remember that Thanksgiving when she gave me the password and I, I was able to binge that first season. And boy, I loved it. It was so cool to see that. And boy, I guess just all the other movies that they had there, some of them were top notch. Yeah. Hubby and I are watching Hannibal now on Netflix. Oh, oh okay. I love that series. That, that is really good. Yeah, we've got, uh, we've got the Disney Plus because uh, my daughter is like, she she has our Netflix, and she was talking about something. We're like, you have Disney Plus? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, well, aren't you watching our Netflix? And she said, yes. And, and we said, well, we should be watching your Disney Plus then. <laughs> so that's how we got Disney Plus. I hear you. Well, that's cool. That works. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, there's another question uh, from Thwip on here, uh, Alex. He says... Okay. Um, he said, how did you get the gigs of storyboarding for the films Hoot and Never Back Down? And would you say that your career in comics informed those endeavors? Yes. Yes. Actually, before I before I did Hoot, Never Back Down, I did um, my first film storyboarding venture was in the year 2000 at Universal Studios for a movie that never got made. Uh, it was called Claws. Okay, about it wasn't about Santa Claus. It was about some creature that had claws around Christmas time. Uh. And um, I remember that first meeting where I'm sitting at this uh, table with, oh, executive producers and this guy and that guy and the director. And the director introduces me as a storyboard artist. And everybody kind of gives you a nod. And then... Um, I don't know, we had we were about an hour into the meeting and it was time to take a break or whatever. And so um, somebody asked a question and, and the director says, oh yeah, well, by the way, Alex, Alex works on Spider-Man with Stan Lee. And all of a sudden, everybody just 
their eyes popped open. Like, you know Stan Lee? Do you know Todd McFarlane? Oh, yeah. I said, yeah, I know Todd. Holy mackerel, you got to come over my cubicle. I got to show you my spawn figures. <laughs> and um, as a matter of fact, let's see. Um, I did this movie called Lonely Hearts, uh, which was uh, which had John Travolta and James Gandolfini and Selma Hayek in it, and Jared Leto, uh, Laura Dern, um, Scott Kahn from you know the guy mm. from Hawaii Five O. Yeah, um, so yeah, this was, an, this was these characters. This was an this was an independent film, and. Um, you know, I mean, John Travolta was at still at his peak, 2005, and um, you know he was making 15 or 20 million dollars a movie at that time. But he did this movie because he liked the story, and so when you like the story, you can work out a deal. And the deal was okay. Maybe his salary on it was only about maybe two million, but then he was going <laughs> to get a big back end. The movie oh. made squat. So, but that's not, you know. He goes into it saying, hey, look, I'm reducing my salary because I want the big back end. If right. you don't get the big back end, oh, well, so so be it. Yeah. But at any rate, I never got to meet those actors because my job got done on a Friday and they were starting to film on Monday. Oh. And, and I lived in Port Orange, Daytona Beach, and uh, the movie was being shot in Jacksonville. And um, there was a cinematographer there named Peter Levy who um, let me know in no short terms that his, one of his best friends or his best friend is a director named Stephen Hopkins, who was responsible for Predator 2 and The Ghost in the Darkness and um, a few other things uh, here and there that I'm sure some people may have seen. And he's a huge comic book fan. So could I sign off or could I maybe... So I said, so would you want me to bring in a couple of Spider-Man books and have sign them off to Stephen? Oh, he would love that. Okay, so that's... Lonely Hearts, and then um, I guess I got to do Hoot because the director of Lonely Hearts was friends with the director of Hoot and told him about me, and so I got a phone call to do the storyboards on Hoot. And while I was finishing up the storyboards on Hoot, I remember I was in the gym on a treadmill, had my phone, and all of a sudden I get this call. And somebody says, hey, you were recommended to, for us to call you to do storyboards. Um, uh, would you be able to get to Baton Rouge, Louisiana by the weekend? I said, <laughs> who is this and where are you calling from? I mean, they didn't give me any name. I'm thinking, okay, somebody wants to attack me, kidnap me, do something. I have no idea. <laughs> but uh, they mentioned yes. this guy, Peter Levy, who was the cinematographer on, uh, on Lonely Hearts. And he was working on this movie now called The Reaping with Stephen Hopkins uh, directing The Reaping, and it was going to star Hilary Swank and Idris Elba before he became, you know, Heimdall and Thor and all Luther and all that stuff. And so, you know, I said, oh, yeah, okay, great. So I ended up going to Louisiana in 2005. I think I went there July 4th weekend, and I didn't get done until the middle of September. Wow. Working on all kinds of special effects scenes and stuff. I mean, every two or three weeks, they flew me back home for a weekend so I could spend some time with my family. Um, but then I had a, you know, then I had a, you know, so I, let's say I got home Friday night and then Sunday afternoon, I had to take a flight back to Louisiana, get ready for Monday. 
And so I did, um, I worked on the storyboards for that film, which was kind of cool. Um, and uh, what, what was great about that was because he, um, Stephen was a big comic book fan when on the first day that he was coming into the production offices, we were like, everybody was hanging out in the break room. And, uh, you know, so usually there's this, there's this sort of like political hierarchy in film where, you know, you can't talk to this guy if you're not on the level of that guy. And mm. it's, it's a bunch of bull crap. Okay. <laughs> so at any rate, so there's all these guys that are, you know, they want to meet Stephen Hopkins <clears throat> and the special effects guy who knew Stephen says, Oh, Stephen, this is Alex Savick, you know, the storyboard artist. And he goes, Oh, Alex. And he pushes through the crowd and he comes over and shakes my hand and we start chatting and I'm looking around and I'm seeing all these dirty looks I was getting from, you know, behind <laughs> Stephen. I'm going, oh, wow, this is great. And the special effects guy who kind of took me under his wing, he's, um, at the time he was in his early 60s and he had done, he had worked on The Abyss with James Cameron. Um, he had done some work on Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, this guy was all over the place. And um, so he just said, hey, he says, you know, it's just, you know, it's just like, it's just the way it is. You know, you just, you just kind of have to feel things out, know your place. You know, I went, I remember being invited to this storyboard meeting and Steven is over there and he's going, um, now does anybody have a particular insight as to how we, we might go about doing this? And I raised my hand and this guy, Richard Urisich, the special effects guy kicks me under the table. And of course I withdrew my arm right away. And so I looked at him and he just kind of shook his head no. And I figured, okay, fine. Hey, I'm not saying a word. And then after the meeting was over, I said, Hey, what was that all about? He says, Hey, did when, you know, when the director says, does anybody, anybody just means the assistant director, uh, the line producer, the, you know, this guy, that guy in his around the circle that, you know, everybody's sort of idolizing the director. Okay, you can't, you know, I'm just a commoner storyboard guy in the back. I'm not supposed to raise my hand. And he says, did you see the look, the dirty look that the executive producer gave you? I said, no, I'm not looking at the executive producer. Stephen asked a question. I raised my hand. He goes, you'll see him soon enough. Believe me, you're, you know, people, you know, people are jealous of the fact that he has audiences with you to discuss storyboards. And because of, uh, and to answer Whip's question, because of my storytelling ability in comics and the fact that Steven was a big comic book guy, there were a couple of instances where on a weekend they said, hey, you feel like doing some overtime? And I said, like, what do you mean? Well, um, Steven wants to meet with you later. And I think he might have a scene or two that he'd like you to storyboard over the weekend. And then they'll go, then you'll go over it on Monday. I said, oh, Okay. So yeah, I did that over the weekend. I remember this one scene. I think I drew 110 panels over the weekend. Great. But now the panels were sort of like an inch and a half by three. So they were just like quickie. It's like a really cool way of telling a story and yet keeping a cinematic eye about things when you're putting these panels down because it's, you don't have all the camera, you have camera angles, but you have to stay within a particular framework because again, Every time you make a camera move, it costs money. Um, the 110 panel scene that I had storyboarded, they said, wow, if we do that, it'll add an hour to the movie. So we have to whittle this down <laughs> to about maybe 30 or 40 frames tops. And they did. And um, so that worked out. But I can recall when I mentioned money, 
I can recall doing a scene where at the end of the movie, Hillary Swank with this girl, they're walking through these flames, walking into the flames and then coming out of the flames. And if you do cuts where the flames are the special effects, and if you do cuts behind them, so the side of them in the flames, and then the front view as they're coming out, that becomes three shots. Each special effect shot is $50,000. Okay. So they said, what I need to do is need to move the camera and make it one shot, move the camera from behind them and rotate the camera with just a rotation move, no cut, and then end up in front of them. And just how you set it up and draw the arrows will let them know, hey, this is one shot and it only costs us 50 grand instead of 150 grand. And even though that movie had the biggest budget of any film I ever worked on uh, of about $65,000, still, I mean, they had to penny pinch when it came to all the special effects that were just adding up like crazy. Wow. And and when you see that list of credits at the end of every movie that you watch, all those guys are getting paid. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, you know, those, you know, when you've got, uh, when you want, when you see producer, executive producer, executive producer, executive producer, assistant editor, assistant executive producer, and then three more executive producers, they're all getting paid. Okay. And as soon as they have that, that title of executive producer, they're making money. Okay. Mm -hmm. Stan Lee would be an executive producer where they would call him up and say, Hey, Stan, here's what we're going to do. What do you think? I think it's great. Okay, great. Bye, Stan. And he'd get paid 150 or 200 grand. He's executive producer, you know? So, um, but yeah, to answer your question, yeah, the, my, the, my comic book affiliation, uh, you know, doing Spider-Man, being, working with a director who is a big comic book fan. And, and there's a lot of directors in Hollywood out there who are, who grew up on comic books now. And if I, uh, I remember at the time when I was working on the reaping in 2006 um, or no five was supposed to, and I think it was supposed to, it ended up coming out in 2006 uh, because we were in Baton Rouge at the time when hurricane Katrina hit new Orleans. Okay. So when it was just about ready to kill us, we, they rented a plane in Baton Rouge and 200 crew people got on the plane and we flew to, um, Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. And we hung out in an Omni hotel for a week. And then I thought that was the end of the movie <clears throat> because some of the locations that we had visited and I had done some sketches and whatnot on some of these, uh, for a case in point, there was a, an old monastery. Oh man, it was so cool looking uh, just on the water's edge of this river in New Orleans. And there was a scene that was going to be shot there. And after Hurricane Katrina, that thing was completely underwater. Mm. So now they had to go find a new location. Okay. And uh, if you saw the movie, you'd see where they ended up. I think they ended up in Mexico or something like that, which again is another expense. Mm-hmm. But so, uh, that's why we love comics, right? Because we've got an unlimited special effects budget. That's exactly what Julie Schwartz said to me when I first started working for him. And he says, listen, he says, you have the benefit of being the producer, the director, you have a, you don't have to worry about money. You can use, you can create whatever environments yeah. you want. And it doesn't make, doesn't make a difference because, Hey, it's just a comic book and you're getting paid. Right. I, mean, I don't know if, are any of you guys familiar with um, what Liam Sharp had done, has done with Green Lantern over the last couple of years? 
I mean, that stuff is insane. The things, the worlds and whatever that this man has created. And I even wrote to him on social media and said, Liam, you're getting, you're getting really carried away here. I mean, they can't be paying you <laughs> enough to do this. And he says, no, they don't, but I love it. Yeah. And that's the whole thing. You know, you got to love it. Mm. John Romita told me ages ago, he goes, hey, listen, you know, if you want to do comics, you have to have, you have to have it in your blood. You have to be passionate about it because, you know, we don't make a lot of money. We work ridiculously difficult hours, but, you know, we love doing it. It's in our blood. Yeah. You know? Will Eisner even said the same thing many, many moons ago. Yeah. So. It's yeah. a, but now, now after doing it for 44 years and I'm going to be 69 this year and I've got my bones are aching and, uh, you know, I want to sleep more. I don't know. I, John Ramita told me many, many years ago. I mean, he's 90 now, but probably when he was around my age, he said, you know, Alex, he says, I envy the young kids of today in comics. And I said, why is that, John? I said, you're John Ramita. He goes, well, he says, I know, but he says, I envy the fact that they still have, that they have so much passion. Uh He says that all the years that I've been doing this, I seem to have lost my passion for it. I can still do it, but I'm not as excited about it as I used to be. And I hate to say it, but I, there are times where I'm at that particular point. Really? Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, I still draw, I haven't drawn a a phantom story uh, Mm -hmm. in a while, but um, I'm doing right now, I'm doing a lot of commissions I'm working on a, I'm storyboarding a, a Bible vis, video project that's, you know, taking place in Orlando. So my comic books, comic book stuff has basically come to a halt, although I'm going to be doing an, an independent story, um, like a, maybe an eight or a 10 page story for a buddy of mine who's starting up a company. And he's, he's already corralled a couple of uh, artists like Alan Weiss and Al Milgram and wow. a few other people to do uh, artwork for him. And so, I mean, that story should be ready in a, in a little while. And um, then a buddy of mine in Sweden has become the new editor of the Phantom. So at any point in the next couple of months, I, I could get a, a, an email that where they might ask me to do a Phantom story again. And actually the Phantom is also, as I had mentioned, big in Australia, and I am going to be working on a phantom story for them too. Uh, they're just waiting for some script approval right now from King Features. But I still like drawing the phantom. But quite honestly, um, I'm I'm going to be working with a buddy of mine, uh, Jeff Vaughn. And I know, yeah, I know Jeff. Jeff. Yeah, yeah. and um, we've talked about you know doing some creator-owned stuff together uh, for a really long time. I'd like to do. Uh, you know, overcoat, hats, um, mystery type stuff, get away from the costume heroes. Yeah. And and draw lots of folds and clothing and dark alleys. And, and fire and, engines. And yeah. Yeah. And, and <laughs> noir there. Well, that's the having, fire having the private eye not be, you know, look like John Hamm so he can beat the crap out of everybody. <laughs> no, he gets himself beat up, you know, just regular people. Yeah. Well, that's what I really enjoy about being retired is that I don't have an agenda anymore and I can do uh, my own book at my own speed and I'm enjoying it. You know, it's, I don't have a deadline to meet if I don't want to. Um, I'm the boss. Oh, that's cool. 
yeah, it's, it's, it's relaxing. I, I work, I do it every day. Um, but maybe I've got the grandkids one day or something like that. It's like, well, I'm going to babysit today. So <laughs> yeah, it's nice. I love it. I love being retired. It's, it's given me a whole new enjoyment of, of comics because now it's, it's just fun. Really I don't love. need the money. Thank I mean, when people, people ask me, well, gee, Al, wouldn't you, uh, I mean, I'll do a commission and people, you know, people, the fan, fan, the fans get excited and they go, oh man, your stuff, this stuff looks great. It looks better all the time. How come you're not doing a book for Marvel or DC? And I, the first answer is, well, number one, they're not calling me. Right. Number two, <laughs> unless it's just going to be like an issue or something, or maybe a three part mini series where they tell me I've got like, six or eight months to do it okay i don't want to be pressured into work burning midnight oil or any of that kind of stuff too old right. it comes, it, you know I, it gets to 11 o'clock 11 30 um if i took a nap earlier in the day i'm still watching tv <laughs> but if i didn't take that nap yeah. i want to go to sleep you know? i i am too old to be working 12 to 16 hour days two pages That's a week anymore of course i i, I enjoy do, doing this at my leisure it's it's uh it's fun it's fun yeah i mean i, I, I do put a, the fun back couple, into it i do a couple hours here my dog is always wanting to go out so i gotta take a break <laughs> and go out with the dog uh you know we bought a new house uh back in october i have a lake in my backyard and it's really kind of serene to look at stand i still stand out there going really is this my house this is crazy you know this should be a vacation house but this is my this new is house much. it's kind of neat uh, I got a lot of, I got a lot of, um, um, I got a lot of, if you want to use the term, if the term white noise is still acceptable and this is modern society. Um, I got I-95 across the other side of the man-made lake. So there's always this whirring and whooshing going about. So it's not like there's dead silence when I step outside. It, it almost sounds with the noise of, of I-95 and the traffic and the water out there, it almost feels like I'm living at the beach. And, you know, the waves are kind of making all this noise and I got the wind and whatever. It's very relaxing. Uh, my wife still works at Publix and, you know, as a cake decorator. And when she comes home, she just loves sitting on the, we have a screen in patio right now. She loves sitting out there and just enjoying the weather and reading a book and then mm. probably taking a nap because she's exhausted. <laughs> um, I know exactly probably, what. I mean, I, she's at the point where within the next year or two, she'll probably retire. I know exactly what you're, what you're talking about now. When we first started, I mean, I was so full of passion and fire that, I mean, it burns so hot and you do it for seven days a week, yeah. 12 to 16 hours a day. And after almost 20 years, you, you, that passion, that fire has burned you out from the inside out. You got to take a break for a while. And I found that now that I'm retired from, uh, and I can do it at my leisure, the fun has come back. Yes. Right. Yeah. I just um, I just did a commission for a guy long overdue. I don't know if anybody has, you know, follows me on Facebook, but it was a sort of a reimagining of the amazing Spider-Man 119 cover with Spider-Man versus the Hulk. And, uh, you know, the guy want, you know, these people that are diehard recreation fans. Yeah. They want the logo. They want the corner box. They want their comics code approved symbol in the, the <laughs> top side there and all the lettering and the logos and the whole nine yards. 
And so I always, uh, I always, I, I give the, I make the mistake of saying, yeah, I'll do the recreation. Here's what it'll cost. If you want all the lettering and stuff, it's going to cost you X amount more, but you know, I should be charging more for that because I hate doing it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, I don't like doing the lettering part, although I have this really cool lettering marker with a chisel, chisel top uh, nib that works really nicely. So it's, you know, and it's just cover copy, so it's no big deal. But I mean, I got a light box to Spider-Man logo, put it on there. Yeah. Uh, done that a couple of times already for some people. Um, and it's not usually that they go, oh, do you do logos and stuff too? No, I offer it to them and I give them a price, which I, I find, well, it's probably more than they might want to pay. But if you don't let them know this is what it is, then they're not going to say yes or no. Mm. And then they go, oh, yeah, that's fine. And you go, damn, I should have asked for more money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Alex uh, Thwip has another question here. Here He says, uh, you co-created the character Nightwatch, and he is often compared visually to Todd McFarlane's Spawn. How often do you get questions on Nightwatch and if he was inspired by Spawn? Whip, you're the first person that ever asked me a question about Nightwatch looking like Spawn. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, when uh, Terry Cavanaugh, who was the also my co-creator there with that character, when he gave me the description, it was basically to come up with some sort of a variation of Todd McFarlane's Spawn, because, well, what's more flattering than, uh, you know, trying to copy somebody else's success? Yeah. Uh, because McFarlane had left Marvel to go create Spawn, and um, it was making millions of dollars. And so I remember when I did the designs and I first showed it to them, I said, are you sure this isn't going, we we're not going to get in trouble with this because it really looks a lot like Spawn. Oh no, it's perfect. I said, okay, I'm writing that down. Okay. You said it's perfect. Um, but then actually if Whip recalls by the time Nightwatch got to his own comic book, they had, you know, toned down the cape mm. and certain aspects. So yeah, you could say the face or whatever, but uh, certain features they softened up. So um, it wasn't, I think I followed, uh, whatever, 25% plagiarism rule. So you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't kill me on it. And by the time Nightwatch <laughs> got his own book, it was more like a 50% plagiarism thing going on, you know? <laughs> and by the way, I don't know if Whip is aware of it or anybody else is aware of it, but, um, not that it's been optioned out yet ready, but, uh, Spike Lee is very interested in doing a Nightwatch movie. Wow. Really? That's we cool. found that out about, oh, I'm going to say two or two years ago, at least, if not more. And it's one of those, oh, yeah, I like this character Nightwatch. And they kind of leave it on the back burner and mm. maybe sometime, someday. But in the meantime, you know, Marvel has approached me and said, uh, well, we'd like you to sign this character, this agreement for this, that, and the other thing. I said, ah, I signed a new character agreement already, which is very beneficial to me back in 19... 19- 92 Mm -hmm. uh so i'm not signing anything else at the moment and even (laughs) howard mackey my friend my good friend who's also best friends with terry cavanaugh said hey listen yeah terry said hey you know give him a call someday so he can talk to you about you know his you know what his attorney has suggested and this that and the other thing since nothing has come about with it i haven't bothered to give him that call yet but 
if something should come up, yeah, by all means, you know, I'll get in touch and see what happens. Because if it's, if it's, you know, we've, if we've created a character and he get, gets his own feature, then it means, you know, it's, it'll be more money for us and royalties, yeah. et cetera. You know, mm-hmm. participation. Yeah. I didn't realize yeah, so you Tombstone, the... I co I co-created Tombstone with um, Jerry Conway. And oh. I remember at one point, I would say before the Spider-Verse uh, movie, uh, animated movie came out, um, I was at a convention the year before and somebody came up to me at the table and said, hey, ha, so have you heard that Tombstone's going to be in the next Spider-Man movie? I said, really? you got to be kidding me. I said, that's great. I said, but I already heard that there's going to be, oh, the uh, the Vult- uh, Michael Keaton's coming back as the Vulture and they're going to have some other character in there. I said, I hope that they don't really wreck it Mm. And, you know, because if there's too many villains in the pot, it's just a bad story. Yeah. You know, uh, we've already seen that. I don't have to yeah. even bring that up. But uh, as it turned out, uh, even though I asked Jerry Conway about it, he says, hey, you know, um, I don't know, you know, you know what we would make as far as money on the movie. But, you know, if there's licensing, we'll, we'll make we'll make a killing on the licensing if they come out with new toys and stuff mm. like that. Yeah. As it turned out the next Spider-Man movie happened to be Into the Spider-Verse, which uh, it oh. made sense then. Oh, yeah, that's where Tombstone is going to show up. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I remember Marvel getting in touch with me at the end of that particular year when the movie was going to debut and they wanted to fly me out to California for the opening. And I'm thinking, uh, and it's funny because they offered me money uh, to, so I could buy my ticket and stuff like that. And in the same breath, they said, well, if you don't want to come to the opening, we'll, we'll give you the money anyway. <laughs> and so I said to my wife, well, why the hell would I spend a, a t- plane ticket for LA, get the hotel room, just so I can schmooze with these guys who, you know, might smile at me and say, yeah, Tombstone was great. Long live Tombstone. And then they'll never talk to, t- talk to me again after that. <laughs> what's the point and then i found that after i after i declined i found out that the following week they were doing another opening in new york city and i said well i'm on the east coast why didn't they just offer me new york city i got friends and family there yeah. that would have been fun but no they you know they just uh a little bit uh a little bit brainless on how they were planning that whole thing out so yeah they don't often know what the the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing, do they? Exactly. <laughs> and, and I I saw I ta- I saw Tombstone in the um, a couple of years ago in in the Spider Man video game that came out. Yes, I heard that too. Yeah, yes. yeah, he's in there. He's in there as well. You know, so yeah, great character. One of my favorite villains. <laughs> yeah, cool. But he got uh, his butt kicked by Aunt May in that in that cartoon movie, man. So <laughs> that's not really cool. Aunt May's not supposed to be using baseball bats and, and hitting people over the head with them, you know. <laughs> Turning out to be some sort of a uh, you know agent for the underground CIA yeah. or whatever. It was. She's supposed <laughs> to be hitting them with her purse, isn't she? Yes, the purse. There you go. Yeah, the purse. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's eleven o'clock here, uh, so I guess uh, yes, it is. Holy so, Christmas. <laughs> see i told you we have a great time when we just sit down and, and, and we, well we, you know what i hate to say it when I, I hate to say it once people once once i get started on these on answering these questions uh it's a good thing that you were talking to everybody else first because i just ramble on and on I <laughs> no that's what we, that's what we wanted you to do <laughs> i've talked to you long enough to know 
So, um, so do you have, uh, Alex, do you have any, um, are there any conventions, appearances, store signings in, in, in lined up in the future? I mean, I know we're, we're still, uh, you know, well, you in know the what, COVID. I, right now, right now I haven't, the only thing that I've agreed to doing is, uh, all the way in November, mm. uh, there's a convention in, I think I, I did that show maybe about three or four years ago in, in, uh, it's either Arkansas or Alabama. Oh. And they asked me back and I said, well, yeah, I think I could do it. And they were so excited. They said, because, oh, we reached out to so to a, a, a few a dozen people, but nobody's gotten back to us. You're the first one. And I said, well, if I can get the vaccine sometime before, you know, anything goes on, because initially they said, oh, if you got the vaccine, not that you should, you know, not be careful, but you know, it should give you a fair amount of protection. You still got to, you know, wear your masks and social distance just to be on the safe side because all these new variants that are popping up left and right all the time are making it a little, making them a little bit uh, wary of, hey, how effective are these vaccines really going to be for yeah. all the stuff that's coming out? But it actually follows suit with, you know, just getting a flu shot. I mean, there are so many strains of the flu that are present every right. year but we're getting a flu shot to protect us from the one that seems to be prevalent for that particular time period. Yeah. Doesn't mean that we can't get a flu and after the flu shot, but you know, so far I've had the flu a couple of times, but I've never, you know, been on death's door or anything like that. This, this COVID thing is just a little bit too scary because even for the, some people in my family got hit with it. And even though they came out okay after about a week, Unfortunately, from what I, you know, my brother's in biology and stuff like that, teaches at Daytona State University College. And, you know, from what he's read and researched, you know, the after effects of the scarring that's caused by, you know, especially in the respiratory system with this virus is, you'll take that with you for the rest of your life. You know, Uh, I mean, I saw, I saw three photographs side by side by side. One was uh, a clear, an x-ray of a clear lung. And it was sort of like almost black because it was a healthy lung. And then if you had a lung of a smoker, then it was half, half occluded, okay? With a, a coronavirus survivor, the, the, the whole screen was practically all white. You could almost not even see the outline from the scarring that occurred because of all the, uh, you know, of, of the damage that the virus had done to that individual that survived, you know? So you got to really be careful, but I have not, I mean, I saw that, uh, you know, you've got something going, um, you know, in the near, in September, I think, or Daytona beach. Yeah. Daytona beach. September. Uh-huh. I mean, I know that's kind of local. I mean, I'm, I'm probably not going to be going on any planes or anything until maybe yeah. next year, if they've got a better grip on this, but I would say I'd have to wait until maybe after the summer, Wait, yeah, before, see what happens. Before hell, I commit to doing anything. Uh, there's a, uh, I think it's called a Collecticon over with, there's this guy named Greg Bonaire. Sure, that, I know him. You know Greg? Yeah, he's yeah, got Boney. a one-day show. He's been trying to get me to that show for ages. Yeah. And so I know it's a one-day thing, but again, unless it's at a particular level where I will feel safe, right? Um, I don't want to commit to anything. Yeah. I mean, they and had think- at the Volusia Fairgrounds, they had their, their January thing, and um, mm-hmm. they and they, from what I understand, that it was packed it the was, entire yeah. freaking day. 
Yeah. And I'm thinking, yeah. well, the I mean, that might be great for business, but the last thing I want to do is be in a in a hot room with packed individuals, you know. Well, well it, yeah, I was there. It, it it wasn't hot, so it was a good day. Oh. Uh, but and and that that was one of Tom Ropp's shows. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And everyone had mask on. There was, uh, you know, there was hand sanitizer at uh, every vendor's booth. And and okay. uh, yeah. So uh, and and Tom even um, I don't know. It's once we talk about this, but Tom even kicked a guy out who was unwilling to wear his mask. He, he, he came in and then, you know, took his mask off. And Tom said, I got to ask you to leave. You're not going to wear your mask. And so. Um, so, yeah. So everyone wore their mask and, and um, they're, they're on that. You know, Tom was, you know, for sure on that pretty, pretty good. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I it, it. It, it was it was packed. It was there was a lot of a lot of people there. Yeah. Well, everybody's missing conventions. Mm -hmm. You know, you, yeah. you get some you got you got an opportunity to get out of your freaking house. Yeah. To do something that you enjoy doing. Uh, I mean, hey, look, I'm a freelance artist like everybody else that we're talking to here, whether they be writers, artists, inkers, mm -hmm. pencilers. Okay. Hey, we've quarantined for our entire lives. Okay. Yes, we've been right. sitting in our rooms. Okay. Right this. Just, uh, you know, I'm not saying we've waited for this, but we always had the choice of, hey, you know what? I'm putting my pencil down and I'm going to go to the store. I'm going right. to go see a movie. I'm going to take the wife out to a restaurant tonight. And now it's, you have to be so cautious that, um, you know, certain things that you really, really enjoyed doing. I mean, I love watching television in my house. I got a 60 inch TV and I got a pause button. If I have to go to the bathroom, or I <laughs> yeah. go in the kitchen and get some coffee, but I still enjoy seeing some things on the giant screen, mm -hmm. you know? Yep. I mean, King Kong's going to fight Godzilla on my 60-inch television, and I'll have to be happy with that. That's right, yeah. You know? So this, this show in November, uh, it wouldn't happen to be Comic Conway, would it? Yes. Yeah, okay, yeah. I know, that the, and Howard and I actually, uh, about two years ago, two or three years, no, about, about three years ago now, um, were there and had a blast at that show. So have you oh, done I it did. before? Howard was the one that recommended it to me, and he was supposed to be, he did it one year, and then he was supposed to show up the second year with me there. And then at the last minute, something came up, family, personal wise, whatever, and he couldn't make it. And then I would imagine they might have had him again, maybe, like you say, when you were yeah. there. Yeah. And um, so I had even mentioned, hey, it's Howard going to be there? Anybody from that group? And they at the time, they just said that, you know, nobody's gotten back to them yet. So we'll um, have to see what happens. Yeah. yeah. But I just figured I'll, I'll say yes, because it's so far down the road. Right. Hopefully things will ease up a little bit more and there'll be more precautions or, yeah. you know, uh, like I said, I got to get the, uh, I got to get my vaccine. Yep. Um, uh, I mean, I've got, I've got, besides my age, I've got, you know, too many risk factors being diabetic. Um, you know, I'm not exactly the skinniest guy on the planet. Right. Um, although I'm, you know, losing weight a little bit, a little bit of here and a little bit That's there. Good. I'm still, you know, by November, uh, is that, are those, that's, is that supposed to be black or is those, are those stitches on uh, the bear's paws there? They are X's. <laughs> Looks like stitches. Stitches. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Stitches. I didn't want, yeah, I didn't yeah, want to be confused like, oh man, I should have put a black in there. I guess somebody's going to be annoyed. <laughs> no, it looks like it could have been that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not. <laughs> Yeah, November's still what eight eight months away. So hopefully, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Now New York Comic Con is in October, 
And that's like, wow, you go to New York Comic Con, you make a lot of money, you have a great time, but wow, that could be a sardine can. So I don't know yeah. if they're going to actually do it. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't heard, <laughs> haven't heard about that one. Uh, I know they moved a lot of the uh, the spring conventions to the fall. So okay. uh, I remember MegaCon got moved. Was that supposed to still be this year? I think, yeah, I think MegaCon's been moved to like September, October, or something like that. Okay. Yeah, uh, I don't, I don't remember the exact dates, but I, I do think that they that that has been moved to around that same time. Right. Uh, so, uh, Thomas Flormonti says, uh, "Great hearing from you, Alex." Who so, said that? Thomas Flormonti. Oh, okay. Hi, Tom. Yeah. So, um, well, Alex, um, thanks for uh, hanging out with us. Thank you for listening to the Silverline Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode. We know we ramble sometimes, but we have fun. And after all, isn't that what comics are all about? We hope you'll follow us on all our social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Twitch, LinkedIn, Reddit, MeWe, Gab, and whatever new thing pops up between now and the time you listen to us. Please like, follow, share, and remember, make mine Silverline.